From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized post-mortem AMA where you can ask me anything. And here at my virtual side is producer Joe Russo to ask the questions that you've submitted. Joe, how are you? I am doing pretty well, Mick. Uh, as you know, we finished my Netflix movie uh, post-production over the weekend. Um, Can't so wait to see it. You and Alejandro Bruges as a combo is one that I don't think you can beat. I hope I hope you feel that way in uh, like six or eight months. Uh, <laughs> so do I. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. And you had some pretty exciting news to kick off the year, too. Yeah, there are a couple of projects that I've been working on for a while that are moving forward. The thing I mentioned before that Clive Barker and I are working on together looks like uh, we're taking another step forward with that. And another series I'm creating had uh, an interesting cast uh, member, potential cast member attach himself to the project. So, so things are good. It's uh, the new year is starting out well, despite the curse of Corona. Yes. Yes. I, I say you are, uh, you are bucking a trend that is, uh, you know, unfortunately kind of slowing the rest of the world down again, but, uh, but I'm happy to see it. And I can't wait to see how both of those projects pr- progresses. Um, Me too. Thanks. Yeah. La Corona. Yeah. yeah. Shall we, uh, sh- shall we dive into some questions? Let's jump off. All right. Abby asks, does Mick remember how many critters, at least approximately, were in the famous Critters 2 Critter Ball? Interesting. There, there had to be, I never knew a specific number because there, there are actually two giant critter balls. One of them was basically a, a rubber ball, a balloon that was covered by critter pelts that didn't have any faces or anything. That was just easily controlled. And the first time it appears in the town, you can see two of the Kyoto brothers, uh, pair of legs pushing it from oh, no. behind <laughs> if you look really close. Uh, 
Um, so there were no faces on that one. The one with the faces, I think it weighed like a ton and a half. Oh my gosh. On an axle uh, that uh, had a wheel on the other side. Um, but I would guess there are a couple hundred of them, but, but they were, most of those faces had remote control uh, machines in them. So they would bite and snap and blink their eyes and the like. As, the ball, was, specific, as the ball was moving. Wow. As the ball was moving. Wow. So the Kyotos were a very canny group of uh, creators there. I mean, they did such an amazing job on a film with a very short budget pre-digital days, and they achieved a lot. And, and that was quite memorable, uh, probably mostly uh, when it rolls over a screaming townsperson and <laughs> leaves his denuded skeleton in its wake. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Uh, Josh asks, Mick, having spent your life surrounded by some of the most famous people on the planet, have you ever been starstruck? Often. Yeah, I mean, from the time I started doing interviews in high school, you know, uh, the Moody's Blues were, were my favorite band besides the Beatles when I, they were my first interview ever for my high school newspaper and I was starstruck then. I was starstruck interviewing Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix in my, my uh, music journalism days. When I had that uh, first meeting with Steven Spielberg, having him on my Z oh, Channel wow. interview show blew my mind. I never thought it would be possible that he would come on the show and enjoy doing the show to the point where he invited me to interview him for uh, the Indiana Jones documentary. Um, and yeah, many times, you know, doing the work that I've done and working with the people I've been lucky enough to work with. I never talked to Alfred Hitchcock, but I saw him several times on the Universal lot. And you don't get much more starstruck than that. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, I saw uh, John Houston at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel. We were both waiting for our cars uh, from the valet. And I spoke with him and he couldn't have been kinder. And this was right before I made my first short film. So it was incredibly inspirational. So yeah, um, I, I definitely have. And meeting and working with Angelina Jolie and, and at the time she and Brad Pitt were together, I was absolutely starstruck by both of them, but they're, they were incredibly kind and inclusive. And you know, once you get to know them, they put on their pants one leg at a time, like everybody sure. else does. Yeah, and uh, you know, you get to know them as people rather than icons. I was going to say the the anticipation. I think sometimes is is more where the dread comes from when when you actually start talking to them. Uh, I think that then it you you kind of forget that you were once uh, you know maybe struck by by the legend of so and so. Yes and no. You know, there's always that feeling as long as I've known Steven Spielberg and I've worked with him many times over the years, I'm still kind of like, I feel like a, a kid who's getting away with something, you know? <laughs> well, that's good. That's good that you haven't lost that. Uh, so I, I, I can only imagine meeting someone of his stature, uh, you know, so. And um, especially when they turn out to be terrific people. And, and yeah. my experiences have been almost universally really terrific. That's good. That's great to hear. Uh, Jeff asks, the 2020 version of The Stand had about 90 minutes more 
to tell the story than your 1994 version? How would you have used those extra 90 minutes? Would the kid finally make his cinematic debut? Well, that was a decision made beforehand. Both versions of the stand book had come out, including the unexpurgated, updated version that King did afterwards. The original book was 1,200 pages long. The next one was, what, 1,400 or something. Yeah. But even before I became uh, a part of the project, King had written the script, and he made the choice to go back to the original book to not include the kid and to combine two of the characters. Um, and I frankly think it was a really wise choice because we are not a, a, a translation of the book. We are a film adaptation of the book. And I think we made the strongest movie we could make at the time at six hours long. Yeah. And I don't know that another 90 minutes would have benefited the telling of that story, you know? Uh, and I think King was very wise in his adaptation because he, he was writing a movie rather than a book. And so much of uh, books, and we've talked about this many times, are internal musings of the characters and what goes on in people's minds rather than what you see happening. And uh, I, uh, I've never thought, boy, I wish we could have included this scene right. in the stand, you know? Right. Um, and having another week or two to shoot would have probably killed us all anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you have it. No, no regrets. No, uh, no regrets. It, was, it, was, it was the right length for the time. So. It certainly seemed to be. And, and as it was the ratings killer of that year, um, you know, it, it was the right decision commercially, but I also think artistically. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Matt asks, why motion pictures? What moment or film landed exactly right that would put you, Mick Garris, on that path? Well, there are a lot of paths that I was interested in pursuing. Um, writing was one. From the time I was 12 years old, I was writing short stories. I got into journalism in high school and, and doing interviews with people and the like uh, because I was fascinated by the creative process, whether it was with, you know, Ray Bradbury was my first ever interview, uh, even before the rock and roll, uh, the Moody Blues interview I mentioned earlier, but Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling but I was definitely a media consumer of my time. You know, uh, I loved television. Uh, my grandmother used to jokingly call me Michael Allen TV. My middle name is ah. Allen. My full name is Michael. Uh, because I loved it so much. And I loved cartoons. My father was a trained artist. And I thought I would become a cartoonist. I wanted to draw cartoons, make animated cartoons. Um, and then when I graduated junior high school, I was given an eight millimeter movie camera as a gift by my parents. And I started making movies and doing little special effects and the like. So it's a number of things. I loved comic books. I loved cartoons. I loved movies. I loved television. But um, really, as I approached adulthood, the thing that really appealed to me was was writing movies and then uh, eventually getting the opportunity to direct them movies and television but probably it started my first movie crush was the first movie in the fantastic genre that i ever saw 
was Son of Kong. And that and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know, combining my love of the universal monsters with my love of the humor of Abbott and Costello as a child, you know, what greater launching pad to love movies and, and tales of the fantastic. But I read Ray Bradbury, everything he'd written by the time I was 12 years old. And I wanted to be Ray Bradbury and I was writing in that way. But, but once I was able to enter that world of movie making, once Steven Spielberg hired me to write for amazing stories, you know, my fate had been sealed at that time. So it wasn't a singular moment. It was uh, a collection of pop culture and stories and uh, movies yeah. and the like. All of those, all of that media to me was all the same thing. There wasn't much of a differentiation, but right. the direction my life took was when doors of opportunity opened to me uh, in what certainly became what I feel is the ultimate conglomeration of the arts. You know, filmmaking includes writing and performance and cinematography and lighting and editing and storytelling, you know, all of those music, yeah. all of those elements are combined into one uh, fantastic stew. Yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot too. Like when I was growing up, I was into music and, you know, in college, I went to journalism school and, you know, learned to write and write uh, succinctly, you know, and I think a lot of those things do kind of, you're right, it, it all, it all kind of leads you to a path where an art form that includes all of those disciplines. Uh, so it is, it is interesting how it's not usually one moment, it's a, a, a collection of little things that add up to a, a bigger realization. Yeah, and it, it might have started with my father having been an artist and drawing cartoons with him as a, as a very young child. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, there you have it, Matt. Uh, no, 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 no quick answer. No lightning bolt moment. But, uh, <laughs> Never a quick answer on AMA, right? <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, poor, poor our engineer, Chris. Uh, <laughs> uh, James asks, Mick, Having been involved in Fuzzbucket, Hocus Pocus, Amazing Stories, and Batteries Not Included, do you ever have any interest in returning to family movies? And Joe, do you have any interest in approaching this space as a writer or director? Uh, what do you think, Mick? Well, you know, it was really fun to write for the kid that lives in me still, mm -hmm. you know, to write mm -hmm. for the 12-year-old, for the 15-year-old uh, that, that I hope will never die within me. Um, but, uh, you know, if an opportunity to do something like that opened up to me, uh, having done Hocus Pocus and Batteries Not Included and Fuzz Bucket, all those things were wonderful experiences, but I knew there were parameters I had to work within. Uh, I've found you know, the most uncensored Mick Garris is my books, you know, right. my fiction. That's where there are no rules. There's no budget. There's no egos. There's no uh, network or studio to get in the way of what's commercial. There are publishers, but small press will, will publish pretty much anything they think is worthy as opposed to something that will be a blockbuster. So, um, you know, over the years, having worked within the horror genre, uh, which I've loved since childhood, I have been much more drawn to adult 
um, material. So if the right family oriented project came up that that hit me where I live, uh, I'd love to do it. But if I'm going to sit down and write something on spec, it's probably not going to end up on Disney Plus. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you know, the the second part of the question named at me, uh, I'm an Amblin kid. I uh, grew, grew up on Steven Spielberg, grew up on on movies like Hocus Pocus and Batteries Not Included. So uh, so, yes, I would I would absolutely consider trying to, you know, trying my hand at, at, at that space. But, uh, you know, I'm not really at a point in my career where they let you branch out in any direction you would like or choose. Right. You kind of once you get pigeonholed as being good at something uh you tend to be thought of and pushed in that lane and then well, I the good news kind of- joe is that you have not been pigeonholed yet your career is fresh and true you know, true you to, have to the ability degree. yeah i mean you've worked in the genre but kind of borderline on that with action films as well that's as, true as that's true and and, 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 some, and then and then neo noir coming down the pike uh, so I have I have been able to branch my my but but not to the point where people are thinking of me for family you know aims <laughs> content right that's that's maybe where I, I mean I, I'm still kind of more in the adult thriller uh, lane and, and less so the um, you know the the, the Amblin uh, you know kid kid movie right uh, so yeah. well so, I grew up on that too but from inside you know right. I was I loved the Spielberg movies and, and the Lucas movies and all right. that stuff that as a young man, I was uh, captivated by and to be able to kind of spend my cinematic adolescence within the Amblin confines and have an office in the Taco Bell itself was, <laughs> was an astonishing experience that I, I still cherish and think about often and hope, yeah. you know, I would love to do something in the Spielberg world again, if that opportunity arises. Um, there's, there's no better purveyor of unique and original family films than Steven. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, so yes, if, if the opportunity presented itself, I, I would jump into it. Uh, you know, but right now, as, as, as Mick and I have talked about in the past, you know, the, the, the winds of the industry are pushing me in a direction. And I think sometimes you kind of just have to, to hold on and, and, you know, ride that current. Right. Yeah. So. The doors of opportunity I mentioned earlier are the ones that open to you kind of guide you into where your career is going. And yep. and I never intended from the beginning to be a horror filmmaker, but I embrace it. I love it. I'm proud of it. I I'm very, very happy to have been able to uh, spend an entire career within that genre with with a few detours here and there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I feel very lucky that in doing horror and, and action and thrillers and such, uh, those are movies that I, I like and I would watch anyway. So to be able to write in a space that I enjoy uh, is, is, you know, something I'm very happy about. So uh, yeah, definitely, I'm not, not, yeah, I'm not complaining about where the winds are blowing me at all. I'm, I'm couldn't be, <laughs> couldn't be more thrilled. But you know, if it were to uh, you know, blow me towards uh, Steven Spielberg's camp or, or, 
you know, into the Star Wars direction, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Nor would I. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be in a situation like this. You know, I interviewed uh, Christopher Lee in my youth back on the old Z Channel days. And he absolutely resented being known most to his Dracula. Wow. You know, he didn't want to talk about Dracula. He talked about the Wicker Man, you wow. know, and and years later, I had dinner with him and John Landis and he's talking. He was a big talker, by the way. Um, but to have to attain a, an amount of success, very few actors do, even though it was related to a character that was repeated so often is a golden opportunity. It's something, it opens doors to other things available to you, but to, to harbor a resentment for that seems to me kind of sad, you know, it, rather than to embrace something that gives you great success, to ignore it and try to focus on other things that you're more proud of seems to be a, a little bit of, of a melancholy position to me. I, I completely agree. So uh, while I think, you know, the, the short answer is yes, both Mick and I would em <laughs> em embrace going back into those, those worlds. Uh, you know, I, I think we're very happy doing what we're doing. So, yeah. So uh, back to the statement that uh, you don't get short answers on AMA. <laughs> <laughs> you do not. <laughs> All right. Mike asks, movies take so long to make from development to production. How do you stay grounded in the look and style of a project and not let things you watch or read influence the vision of the film you're trying to make? Well, that's the job. The job is to have a handle on what the style and the look and the, the ultimate momentum of the movie is. And most of that's achieved in pre-production. You know, you have these meetings with your production designer, with your costume designer, with your director of photography. Um, and I like to write up a visual manifesto before every shoot that gives the visual philosophy of what the movie is and hand it out to all of the, uh, all of the heads of the departments, the creative department heads that tells, you know, why, what color patterns would be used in what sequences, what emotions we will achieve by using wide or long lenses or moving camera or handheld, or, you know, there is a visual philosophy behind every film that a filmmaker makes. And it's a series of conscious decisions that um, you, you plan out in advance and you leave room for happy accidents. But, you know, yes, they, movies take a long time to make, not as long as we usually need. Um, but uh, those are creative decisions that are, are the main part of what the job you are hired to do as a director is. I, I, I agree. I mean, I was going to say, I think you have to, uh, as a as a writer and or a director, um, you have to be grounded in the theme of the movie and what you want it to say. And I think that if you use that as your compass, a lot of those decisions will fall into place in a unique way. Um, and you won't just be copying a cool shot you saw on TV the night before because <laughs> it needs to be rooted in the theme of the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah, every story, every film story you tell requires its own style, its own approach. You know, it, it may fit within a personal style that you've developed over a, a, a career, but 
every story deserves to be told in its own manner. And, and that's the job in pre-production is to plan that out so that everyone's on the same page with you uh, when you're in production and that you don't get distracted from uh, what you're trying to do, what you set out to do. Yep, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the North Star, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so our final question of the day comes from our uh, good mutual friend, Demir. Uh, he uh-huh. writes, Mick, you like to say movie theaters are where God intended for us to watch movies. But with the latest Omicron surge, some studios are delaying titles, pivoting them to streaming and video on demand again. Spider-Man and Scream certainly seem to indicate we are still going to the movies right now, but should we be? Well, and that should we be? Uh, that's a complicated question. And Demir manages a theater in Texas. He so he's speaking from very personal experience. Um, it's tough. You know, when we were able to go back into the movie theaters, uh, socially distanced and masked here in Los Angeles, I did it and I've been you doing were there. It. You were there right away. I mean, you saw yeah. nobody. I feel like that was that your first movie back. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. It was a fun movie. That's um, a really terrific movie. And, but it was also wearing a mask and nobody could sit near each other. When those theaters opened back up, I'd been vaccinated right. and double vaccinated. Right. And prepared for that. Um, now with the return of Omicron, you know, I've been hesitant. Um, even though I'm double vaxxed, I'm boosted and think everybody should be. Um, I probably will be going back, but you know, there's uh, thinking twice. And it depends on what's drawing you back to the theater. You know, uh, if there's something thrilling that you want to see to the theater. Right. It's always my first choice to see a movie in a theater. I'm lucky enough to have outfitted my living room with a really nice, uh, you know, large screen TV and surround sound that we can watch movies on, but it's never as good as the theatrical experience, particularly in places where you have reclining seats, uh, very comfortable, you have your popcorn and drink and whatever. Um, I feel safe doing it here in LA because of how it's done and because we've been vaccinated. Um, Right double vaxxed and boosted and all of that. But it's an individual situation. I I would not go to a sold out Spider-Man show on opening night. Um, But I I almost exclusively only go to the movies during the daytime where there are very few people. And I I did that before COVID uh, just because I enjoy movies that way. Uh, But now now there's more reason to. I was going to say one little... uh one little hack that I figured out over the last few weeks. Um, you know, L- we're, we're very lucky in LA that you have to be vaccinated to be able to go into the theater. You have to present uh, proof of vaccination before the light unit theater. So there is, there is one, at least one layer of protection there, which, which is good. Uh, you know, what, what sucks about Omicron is while you will still be protected from being very sick and, and likely hospitalized or death, um, it's pretty good about infecting people who have still been vaccinated. Uh, so, so that's, that is the kind of risk, even though the theaters are asking you to be vaccinated and boosted before you come in, uh, which is good. Omicron can get around that. 
Um, it so, can, but it rarely has a, a very strong effect. I mean, well, and that's, and that's what are, I said. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so the people who are hospitalized are the people who have not been vaxxed. Yeah. So I, I too, uh, you know, try and go to shows during the day. And we're very lucky that we have careers that can allow us to do that. Uh, right. Not everybody does. Um, so the hack that I figured out was my local theater started showing open caption subtitle screenings and nobody wants to go to those movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my, my trick is go during the day and also try to go to those. And there'll be like you and maybe two other people on a giant empty theater. Right. <laughs> we so, accidentally went to one of those. And that's it was funny. Oh, so I mean, if you can deal with it, I mean, if you can hang with it, then, then, you know, if it doesn't distract you too much from the movie, which I don't find, I mean, to me, it doesn't feel any different than watching a foreign film. Right. Except right. I don't, <laughs> but except but, you uh, can't help, but look at the, the subtitles, even though you know what they're saying. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Sometimes my eyes drift, but, uh, but you know, at least I can see the movie I've been very excited about seeing like a Spider-Man or a scream and know that I'm doing it in the most safe way that I can, you know, do it. Uh, now, Demir has a, a, a theater in Texas uh, where there is no mask mandate. I would not <laughs> be going to the movies there. Uh, so, you know, I think it is about individual level of comfort. But, uh, you know, I mean, I just, I, I feel like the more protections you can take and the more safely you can do it, you should, that, that's, that should be first and foremost in your mind when going to the movies. And it will be the quickest way we can get back to going to the movies safely. Which, that I would love. Uh, I would like yeah. to not have to, uh, you know, grip my mask to my face through the entire movie. Uh <laughs> yes, exactly. So. Yeah, you do have to show proof of vaccination or uh, a, a test or whatever when you go to a movie theater or most public places in California, which is, which is I think, a great thing. Well, Joe, another great Nick. group of questions. Thanks yes. to everyone and to you. Uh, and next time, if you guys want to send us more questions for Ask Mick Anything, uh, you can send them to Mick on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM, uh, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter or at Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.